Please be seated. Well, we're in a very uh, brief series on uh, what, what do we need shepherds and, and leaders in the church for. Uh, it is particularly the matter of elders that comes before us here in Titus chapter 1. We'll see in chapter 2, it's not just elders. Uh, we need godly women. We need the older to be able to teach the younger. We need uh, men to be examples to the younger men and so forth. There is a great need for Christian leadership throughout the church. And you'll also notice as we go through that uh, none of the things that are required of elders are uh, um, particularly different than what's required from every member of the Church of Christ, uh, except that they, of course, be apt to teach, as he mentions uh, in the passage, or uh, not a recent convert, as he mentions to Timothy. Uh, nevertheless, these are, uh, these are things for every Christian to take to heart. So, reading to you this uh, brief first chapter of Paul's letter to Titus. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the knowledge and acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he's been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said... Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and the commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, your word is given as we read elsewhere that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray that that word would so take root in our own hearts and that likewise you would bless this congregation with uh, godly leadership in every way and in according to every need. We pray that we also might have those who are able to shepherd our souls, to teach us your ways, to lead us in the way everlasting through Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, Crete is a beautiful island that we visited briefly on our honeymoon. But for Titus, 
it was no honeymoon. It was hard to be Christ's servant among the people of Crete. Cretans were known for certain national characteristics. It uh, has several references in the ancient literature. You know how various nationalities are known for certain characteristics, right? I mean, my dad grew up in Scotland, and I not only got to observe a few national characteristics of Scots, I seemed even to have inherited a few of them. Uh, Scots, you know, are uh, not cheap, but frugal, (laughs) dour, conscientious, sometimes moody. Um, Well, the Cretans were also characterized nationally in a certain way. In fact, Epimenides, one of the most famous Cretan writers of the ancient world, a man whom they called their prophet, wrote that little bit in verse 12 that Paul quotes. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says it's true. Not every national stereotype certainly is deserved, but Paul says in this case, yeah, uh, the shoe fits. Well, the gospel, nevertheless, had reached Crete very early. In Acts chapter 2, we read that there were men of Crete present at the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit there baptized that new church in Jerusalem, and people went home taking the faith with them. Some time later, Paul had made a visit to the island with his companion Titus, and in many of the cities of Crete, the church was already growing. But there was, he says, much left to be unfinished. Already there was a great deal, in fact, to straighten out, as he begins to mention even in this chapter. Uh, Paul describes to Titus the kind of leadership that is urgently needed in order to fix what is lacking, as he puts it, in the church. Now, when I say leadership, again, I don't simply mean elders, although that's first on the agenda in this chapter. I'll get, get to some of the other things next week. But I mean godly leadership of all Christians in the church, according to their places and callings. There is a leadership vacuum in the church. And because of that vacuum, because there are not godly men and women and young men and slaves, even he mentions and so forth, practicing righteous leadership, uh, things are not in good shape. So Paul writes this letter to urge Titus to fulfill his ministry and settle the church in Titus, first with elders in every city. One, uh, One very brief note about the introductory words. I don't want to just pass by. You notice that Paul has described his own ministry in a way that reminds Titus of his, and that gives a certain structure, in fact, to the whole book, as I'll probably point out next week. Paul calls himself not only a bondservant and an apostle of Christ, but according to the faith of God's elect and the truth that accords with godliness. Very important connection in this book. The truth that accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God cannot lie, promised before time began. Cretans liars, God not liar, but has in this due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior and, of course, also to Titus. So here is Paul's ministry in a nutshell. It's a a ministry aimed at bringing saving faith, Two and for God's elect. Second, it's aimed at bringing sanctifying knowledge. That is, the knowledge of the truth that accords with or leads to or results in godliness. It's not only that people need to be saved, right? Walk an aisle, sign a card, raise the hand. All all fine, perhaps, according to their own way. But what it needs to do is issue in godliness. He doesn't just want them to be knowledgeable. He wants to have the knowledge unto godliness. And so... 
He's an apostle that brings faith to God's elect, knowledge to holiness, and third, the hope of eternal life, which God, who can't lie, promised. Uh, you'll notice those, those emphases throughout. Titus, I'll just mention briefly. Sorry, I keep on calling your name. I know that's very hard. I, I had this seventh grade biology teacher who used to talk about veins, veins all the time. And he had this kind of strange accent. So it sounded like veins, veins, veins. And every time he said it, I looked up because I was usually sleeping in biology class, right? So uh, sorry, Titus. I, I hope that you'll bear with me today, right? So uh, Titus was a Gentile convert, a trusted companion of the apostle on several of his missionary journeys, although he's not actually mentioned in the book of Acts. He's mentioned in Galatians, 2 Corinthians, and various places. Paul had left him on the island of Crete following a successful ministry outreach to work with the newly established community of believers with cities across the, the island that needed to have the church built up. Okay, so just some introductory matters. I'd like to speak to you today first on the problem of destructive heresy, Second, the solution of elders in every city. And third, the kind of leadership we need. That's my basic outline for today following the chapter. First, the the problem of destructive heresy. Among the Cretan Christians, as we said, the gospel had been received, and yet there were many things that had yet to work out in their lives together. They were still caught up, it seems, in what one scholar called the subjective selfish of the non-Christian society which surrounded them. They were still imprisoned in the sensualism and materialism of of a pagan culture, so very similar to our own. Uh, This is one reason they need leaders, one reason that that he says to Titus, you've got to rebuke him sharply for... Uh, their own prophet does speak accurately about life there. Uh, it, it, was a, it is a beautiful, sunny, sunny island, and there's a certain island attitude. Uh, they were living in an immoral society, in a pluralistic society. Of course, we're living in an increasingly immoral and pluralistic society. So this pressing need um, does speak to our day. The great need that they had in Crete, though, was not to be found in society, but in the church. That is to say, what Crete really needed was a a robust, godly, well-led, well-taught church. It's been the same problem, you see, since God made for himself a people in the earth. God was going to bring his people into Canaan. And he, he told them, even though these people were so much bigger and badder than you are, don't worry I'm going to take care of you. The danger was not that they would be overcome by the Canaanites. The danger was that they would become like the Canaanites, contaminated by the Canaanites. The danger is they become just like the people that God was kicking out. That is the great danger that the church has always faced in all ages and what has always destroyed the people of God. This ever-present danger, not just of false doctrine, which is how it usually begins, but the false doctrine that inevitably leads to the false living, okay? The false living that it engenders. So there are many, um, well, heretics, he says, who are subverting whole households. There are men out there that are actively contradicting the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So, yeah, 
So they, they're saying one thing, but their deeds are contradicting that faith. <coughs> and this will be important because when people study this letter to Titus, you know, sometimes people look very carefully at, let's say, the qualifications for elder Titus 1, or the need that we have for, for women to mentor other women in Titus 2, which we do. We certainly need elders. We certainly need women mentors and, and so forth. He has much more to say, as we'll see next week. But he's not saying we need godly leadership for his own sake. These qualifications are not just in a vacuum. No, no, there's an urgent need. There's an important work that needs to be done. People are spreading heresy that has led to immorality. Some people are even dividing the church, fighting over genealogies and things that had no profit whatsoever. Paul lays it out in verse 10. There are these many insubordinate, idle talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, I'll explain it in a moment, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teach things that they ought not to teach for the sake of dishonest gain, right? They rebuke them soundly, or sharply rather, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables or the commandments of men who turn from the truth and, and so forth. So he... He speaks very strongly about the danger uh, of the Christians becoming Cretans. You say, yeah, Cretans, isn't that an English word? It is, from the notable immorality of Crete. Say somebody's a Cretan, say they're uh, you know, uh, of, of low, uh, low morals, low standing, and so forth. Well, here we go. Here it is. Uh, one of their own prophets said it's true, and Paul says it's true. It needs to be straightened out. So I, I will mention also briefly when he speaks of the circumcision as one of the dangers, what he means, of course, are the uh, Jewish Christians who uh, believed in Jesus um, and then who said that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved, which Paul says elsewhere is just not a gospel at all. They were leading whole households astray. The, these men were very effective, though. They even enticed Peter and Barnabas, for a time, you remember, to stop eating with the uncircumcised Gentiles in Antioch. Um, uh, we, don't, we don't have his name from the scripture, but church history tells us Blastinius, uh, name of a, a, a Jewish teacher from Jerusalem, who, who just followed Paul's steps everywhere. Paul went to spread the gospel. He was just behind a step, a step afterward to lead the church into this false teaching and, and uh, how difficult it was. This was a problem already throughout Crete. Uh, it was a problem that Paul had to withstand Peter to his face in front of the church to deal with. These were dangerous teachings. Uh, Titus, do you know what we need that we could stop this flood of ungodly false teaching of these teachers perverting the gospel, leading people into wickedness and traditions of men and ultimately to perdition. Do you, do you see the problem? Then you might well understand the solution. Point one, the problem of destructive heresy or the heresy that leads to ungodliness. The solution he gives here, in, starting in chapter one, is elders in every city. What we need is what God's people have always needed and always had since the time of Moses, shepherds. We need godly shepherds, he says, in every city. Shepherds after God's own heart. In every city, 
We need to have men who are upright, blameless, having demonstrated integrity, sound in the faith, able to close the mouths of these who are opposing the gospel of Christ and so forth. Verse 9, every city needs elders who are holding fast the faithful word as they've been taught, able both to exhort and convict those who contradict with sound doctrine. So you see the logic. It's not just that we need elders. A church needs to have elders. We, we need elders because we have an urgent problem. And it's not just elders, he'll mention. Uh, we need men who are uh, blameless in these qualifications, not merely that the church should have upright and esteemed men, but we need people who have integrity and who are able to, therefore, speak the word in a community with some authority, with God's authority, who can stop the destructive work that is going on in every city in Crete. These works of those who are teaching false things, leading people into doctrines that accord with unholiness, not holiness. Uh, we, we need elders in every city. And I hope that this might uh, answer any questions you might have, as many people here are not from any kind of Presbyterian background. You're like, Presbyterian, what's that about? And, you know, we only had one elder where we were at, or we had bishops. Uh, if, if this has sounded confusing, I, I hope the next few minutes will not be too boring as we just briefly explain what Paul is saying here. He says in verse 5, we need elders in every city to settle the church, and he begins to describe them. And then you notice in the middle, he says, verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. Um, and the word I have here translated in English, bishop, many of you have as overseer, which is a very literal translation, epi for over, skopos, related to seeing, to overseeing. Uh, you're like, okay, elder, elders, then bishops? What's the relationship? I'm confused. I don't blame you. First, in the Bible, the word for elder, presbyteros, from what you get Presbyterian, and the word episkopos, overseer or bishop, are frequently used interchangeably, referring to the same people. And writers in the middle of a paragraph, even sometimes within a sentence, will go effortlessly back and forth between the older word, elder, which would be much more common to Jewish Christians, and the word that would be more familiar to Gentiles, overseers, although that word also is in the Greek Old Testament. But, for example, uh, Acts chapter 20, Paul is traveling by. He calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus. He gives them a stirring charge, and he says to them, hey, the Holy Spirit has uh, shepherd the church of God. The Holy Spirit has made you bishops or overseers, to shepherd, or pastor, the church of God that he purchased with his own blood. All right. The elders are those who come, and he, uh, the elders of the church at Ephesus, you have been made overseers, bishops, to shepherd, or pastor, the church of God. Compare 1 Peter 5. Peter writes, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fellow elder. I'll explain in a second what the apostle means, but Peter says, I'm a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd, or pastor, the church of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, episcopoi, bishops. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Uh, in the same sentence, he, he, he's, he's exhorting the elders, as a fellow elder, to be overseers, to be bishops uh, overseeing the church of God, and to shepherd or pastor the congregation. So Peter himself is an elder of the church, uh, 
He's also a bishop or an overseer, of course. He's also a pastor or a shepherd. Uh, These words interchangeably used. And so Peter can address his fellow elders as an elder. He tells them to pastor the church, serving as bishops. Same thing. Sometimes only one word is used. For instance, when Paul writes to the Philippian church, he he just says, "To to the bishops there, or overseers. Sometimes he just uses the word elders instead. Uh, We read in the book of Acts uh, last week about the elders of the church in Jerusalem who joined the apostles, uh, also elders, to handle the appeal from Galatia. Or 1 Timothy 4.14, don't neglect the gift in you, Timothy, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Or some of you have presbytery. It just means a bunch of elders, plurality of elders. The word elder... And it refers to a man. The word overseer refers refers to the task or ministry of oversight. Uh, The word shepherd or pastor, same word, of course, in the original, uh, about the kind of ministry he has to uh, the people. It's, It's as though I were to say the mayor of Blacksburg needs to be a man or woman of integrity because the chief magistrate of the town is an office of such great importance. There's no difference between mayor and chief magistrate in my sentence. It's two ways of referring, of course, to the same person in the same office with uh, some nuance. But uh, uh, this you find, again, time and time and and time again. And if you're having trouble sorting it out, I don't blame you. They're they're going back and forth without any apparent uh, shifting of gears. You can can read in 1 Clement, by the way, uh, written about 96 AD, uh, Clement's first letter from Rome, Uh, a man ordained by Peter himself, as Tertullian says. He writes to the church at Corinth and its elders, and several times back and forth he writes to the elders that they are overseers or bishops. Uh, He goes back and forth effortlessly, just as Paul does, uh, making various beautiful applications. I commend to you the reading of 1 Clement and other things in the early church to say that uh, uh, this this is apostolic church government. But this is not invented by the apostles. You notice that there's no, there's no beginning of the office of elder in the New Testament. Um, it was established in the days of Moses, when God's people were told, choose from among you, elders. And in the earliest days, every city had elders. Elders in every city, just as here. So then, from the very beginning, choose from among you these elders who would sit at the gate and govern and shepherd as a synod, the people of God. There might be many congregations in one city, but those elders from the days of Moses exercised authority together in mutual submission to a body called the Sanhedrin. And above them, there was a court of appeal in Jerusalem composed of the 70 elders chosen from among all Israel. Remember Eldad and Medad, of course, the the very first ones, and the Holy Spirit had made them overseers in that uh, day of Moses. You remember when the eldership was, was, was begun with great ceremony and they prophesied. Uh, that appellate of the 70 elders was called the great Sanhedrin. And, and so it is in the apostolic mind. There's no beginning of, of elder or the special kind of elder. The, they're just who they always were. There's elders in every city. There's an appellate in Jerusalem. You got a problem here, you can go there as we see happening in the book of Acts and Galatians and so forth. In Israel, those elders were a very important uh, element in the continuity of God's people. I mean, think of it, the, the period of the judges came and went. The monarchy came and went. 
They, they were in exile in Babylon, and the great Sanhedrin moved to Babylon. The people came back to Jerusalem, and for a while there were two great Sanhedrins. There was one in Babylon, and there was one back in Jerusalem, where it should have been. Uh, there were elders in every city then, and uh, there was an appellate court in Jerusalem, same court that condemned our Lord. Uh, foreign domination went from country to country. Still, God's people ruled in this way. Elders in every city, uh, a court of uh, appeal uh, to which uh, uh, men were selected from, from among all the tribes, uh, a synodical uh, form of government. Uh, some of those elders in Israel, we read, for example, in Acts or other places, were priests. Some of them were Levites. Some of them were just lay leaders like Paul himself. But they all ruled, and everybody that ruled, whether he was a priest or a Levite or something else, they were all called elders. That's why Peter can say, look, I'm an elder. As I say, even though I'm an apostle of the Lord, I, I take my seat uh, among the elders in Jerusalem. I am an elder, and so I can speak to you elders as one who sits in, and rules in the appellate court. So you'll say, what, what happened then? How did the early church move to, to have then a, a monarchical bishop um, and then uh, 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 to have, uh, well, eventually patriarchs, five patriarchs, uh, Rome, Alexandria, um, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Constantinople, uh, higher courts of appeal. Uh, what happened then? Well, Go to, Steve's, go to Steve's church history class, right? Uh, uh, Eusebius and uh, Jerome both mentioned it, 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 there was a, a custom that developed because they wanted to hold the church together. So uh, they just picked one from among them, and you know we, we call him a moderator, but he's, he's the guy that convenes the church. He has responsibility, oversight for the area. Any local decisions that have been made, he needs to communicate to others. Uh, this is the representative that's going to go to the higher court, and so this custom d- developed, which I, I, is still practiced in in Orthodoxy in all the in all the churches to the east, various various churches. No bishop is higher than another bishop. Uh, there is no hierarchy. There's only uh, various responsibilities and ranks of honor. People that are responsible for convening a larger and larger assembly, but all bishops are equal according to Cyprian. Well, anyway. I, I, I don't want to get too much off track here, but simply if you're wondering, who is this bishops and what are they talking about? And what does that have to do with elders and the shepherding of the church? It's, it's saying the same thing in so many ways. From the beginning, God's people needed and were greatly benefited by in good times and were greatly harmed in bad times by having elders. Doesn't matter what the government was, doesn't matter what else was going on in Israel, this was the constant thing and needs to be uh, uh, held in earnestness still today. Uh, we still have synodical authority, we still uh, have, have people going to higher and higher meetings and so forth, but still, according to uh, the biblical pattern, office bearers are chosen by the people. Uh, they are uh, bishops or elders or shepherds or pastors. Ide- identical terms are, are used. Uh, elder is, is very commonly used, but overseer is, is, is fine. There was a plurality of elders in the early church, and uh, there was a hierarchy for appeal. Ordination was the act of the plurality of elders, and there was this privi- privilege uh, uh, that... Uh, uh, was able to uh, be exercised uh, of convening the, the church larger and larger. Only the head of the church was the Lord Jesus Christ. So the very basics of what a Presbyterian system entails, trying as much as possible to 
get, get uh, all the aspects of the biblical government from, from Moses through the post-apostolic church to work in a very broken and uncomfortable system today where the elders of a city are divided, this synod, that synod. Uh, it, it's, it's, not, it's not an ideal situation. Even in the Orthodox Church, right? They've got the uh, Coptic and Syriac and so forth. Uh, Orthodox Church of America, they've got different congregations in the same area, uh, not in the same synod. They're all autocephalous churches. It's, it's messy in the modern system, unfortunately, and the church is suffering. How strong it was when in every city, elders worked together to oversee the church of God, to shepherd them according to God's heart, to be able to feed them what is good, to be able to, to have care for those under their, um, under their watch. And this is the kind of eldership that we read about in Titus 1. End of my point. Thank you for your attention. More, more practically and pastorally, Paul spent some time describing the kind of leadership that we need, that we still need, that we, we need today, here, elsewhere. Paul lists, at this point, 15 qualifications for elders with blameless being repeated for emphasis in verses 5 and 7 as the supreme overarching quality, both personally and in the home. Um, interestingly, the parallel list in 1 Timothy 3 also begins with a synonym, beyond reproach. Not, not sinless, but none of these things being against him. Um, family comes first in the list. When I was examined um, at considerable length by the elders slash overseers slash bishops slash shepherds at Presbytery, uh, I had hours of written exams. And I wasn't asked one question about my family. I thought that was a grave um, error. The family is, if you like, the entrance examination that God has set up for the eldership uh, in the church, we make disciples, and men tend to make disciples of the church like the ones they've made at home. I'm sure there are exceptions to this, but I've never seen one. If you were to judge a man by the disciples that he has already made, here in Titus 1, the family uh, is the uh, entrance examination for the church. The family description is briefer than it is in 1 Timothy but you get the point clear enough. It's summed up in verse 7. An elder is a manager or a steward in God's house. Therefore, his own house should reflect that order and blamelessness. Or, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.2, if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of the church of God? An elder must have faithful or believing children in his household to show himself capable of exhorting in sound doctrine. Verse 9 uh, one commentator says, this additional requirement that an elder be capable of influencing his own children to become Christians demonstrates Paul's conviction that effective spiritual leadership in the home suggests the probability of effective spiritual leadership in the church. Not only is the elder to be a good father, as reflected in his children's behavior, but he's also to be a spiritual father, as reflected in the spiritual commitment of his children. So, home comes first. Starting in verse 7 then, he says there are five vices that must not be gripping him in his life, but six virtues that are to be present in verse 8. My old professor, Dr. George Knight, summarizes this way, a man must not be controlled by any besetting sins of self, but he must love both people and goodness, be thoughtful and prudent, obedient to God's law, seeking to please God, and self-controlled because he himself is controlled by God. 
And so family, personal character, and finally, verse 9, this is where exams usually concentrate, an elder must know and be zealously committed to the apostolic teaching and be willing to teach and rebuke those who oppose it. Here, then, is the pressing need for leadership. Elders need to be show-and-tell kind of men, encouraging God's people around them in sound doctrine and godly ways. Uh, They need to be able to be able to illustrate the kind of life and discipleship that pleases God. They need to be able to close the mouths of the many people who are constantly leading the church astray in every city. In light of the Cretan culture, especially all around, we need faithful elders who can inspire that faithfulness in others. And dear friends, he goes right in chapter 2 to say, and we need older women who could do the same for the younger women. We need people who can adorn or make beautiful the doctrine of God. We need people who can uh, live in, in such a way zealous for good works that uh, are able to, to live out what we are saying. And, and so it is. We all need such leadership. In conclusion, this is not a letter dealing with dry matters of church organization or leadership or administration in the abstract. It stresses a crying need in their hour and ours. Um, Christians are not standing out for holiness in the context of an immoral pagan culture. A church is arguing about genealogies while Crete is perishing and the gospel and good works are being ignored. The message of this letter is, Titus, I left you there to settle the church that we can do, might do something about this situation. That if truth, godliness, and grace are going to be established throughout these cities, here is God's appointed answer, beginning with the elders of the congregation. In the Bible, you don't have to be somebody great to make a great difference. The biblical history is full of judges and prophets and priests and sometimes kings uh, or even apostles in the New Testament who did not stand out for uh, being very remarkable. Moses was a man who did not have the greatest speaking gifts. David was a shepherd's son. Uh, Esther, some of us have been reading, an exiled orphan uh, about the least powerful person in that mighty far-off land who was used to be a great leader and deliverer of her people. Amos, a bruiser of figs, a a prophet in bib overalls called to go and to give the word of the Lord. Matthew, a tax collector. Peter, a fisherman. Some people had great gifts, no doubt, or wealth or advantages. There are those Abrahams of great wealth or Pauls of great mind. But those are more the exception to the rule. The Bible is always giving space to the way in which the Lord loves to use the little man, uh, the little woman, who's willing to do his will. And so it was that people were found over and over again with this confidence. God says, I will certainly be with you. They are to take courage and act above their means because their strength is not their own. We say, who am I? Well, Paul says, "It's uh, it's a very important question. Who is sufficient for these things? No one is. It is costly. It is difficult. It is overwhelming. But it is so important. It is so necessary. 
It's the hope of the churches and the cities of Crete, and it's our hope today. Augustine, in a passage in his Confessions, is found speaking to God about Ambrose and the great impression that Ambrose had made upon him when he was still a a very worldly unbeliever. Augustine said, I began to like him, at first indeed not as a teacher of the truth, for I had absolutely no confidence in your church, O God, but as a human being who was kind to me, end quote. Uh, Augustine found in, in Ambrose a man whom he loved and who loved him, whom he could trust, and from whom he learned the truth that changed him and the world in so many ways through him. Christ himself has loved the church and given himself up for her. So, likewise, do we need elders slash bishops slash shepherds who have the love of the church and give themselves in faithful service under that great shepherd. With Paul, we also say who is sufficient for these things, and yet such a challenge as we read here makes us all the more diligent and conscientious about the task at hand. So I hope that through some of these few sermons, I am encouraging some of you to seek that office of overseer. As Paul writes, it is a fine work that he desires to do when he writes to Timothy. We need such elders in every city. We certainly need them here. And it should be the, the goal as each one is able to aspire to that. Paul says that it was his calling to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And he closes in his address to the elders saying, Brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. I commend you, elders, to, the word of, to God and the word of his grace who is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Not everyone is a preacher like Paul, but with whatever gifts he has entrusted to us, the bottom line is the same. By faithful lives, by good words, by good deeds, we also are called to testify of the grace of God and to live by that word. Let us pray together. Our, our Father in heaven, we, we recognize in the Cretan world of our own day so many of these characteristics and the need that we have of those who, especially in the ways that we read, stand out and stand apart from the world, who can, who can teach many your way, uh, who can lead us, lead us in the way everlasting. So as you asked us to pray in your son so many years ago that there should be um, uh, harvesters raised up for the harvest fields, which were white, so we pray that even from among us, so that you would uh, raise up such uh, godly elders, overseers, shepherds, that the whole congregation might rejoice together and be blessed. We thank you again for such a word and seeing the effect uh, upon the land of Crete and so many places in the ancient world. We do not doubt that you are able to overcome even great obstacles and enemies, even with people like us.